if you want to make this much money, make a million, two million, five million, whatever it is, the amount of effort you need to put in, especially at the beginning, is significantly uh, greater than what we all you know, have been taught. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, I'm excited to be on here and uh, you know have a great conversation with us and your audience so that way they can listen in. Uh, we'll, we'll have some fun here today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Mint chocolate chip, no doubt. Yes. Why? Why is that your favorite? I don't know. I just every time I go in there, I get drawn. Like if I'm going to get ice cream, I get drawn all the way over the mint chocolate chip and the green one too. Because yeah, I feel like yeah. if it's not green, it doesn't taste as minty. Even though I know it's like dye, but you know, I get if I'm going to eat ice cream, I might as well get that dye. Yeah. So I, I tell the story my listeners probably, our listeners probably know is that was my dad's favorite ice cream growing up because he said, you should always get that because no one likes it and no one will ever ask you for a taste of it. So uh, huh. you're a man after my own heart here, my own ice cream. <laughs> heart. Oh, I love it. Well, me and your dad got some good taste. You must be a good man. <laughs> well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. I mean, what we do is uh, I buy and sell real estate consistently more say more or less uh, with our students across the country now. We've really poured into helping people across the country develop their own real estate business. We happen to do it through creative financing. And, and our goal really is to help somebody go from uh, you know their W-2 position to full-time real estate investor. A lot of people approach us, high-income earners, want to take back their, their financial time uh, or their financials and their time freedom. So we'll help them with a, a nice path on way there to eventually get them to a point where you know they're they're financially free and, and buying some real estate and doing whatever else they want to do in this world. I love it. I love it. Well tell our listeners where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah so I was a I was a bartender and personal trainer. Um and I was uh so I came out of college and I had zero idea what to do because I only went to college because my teachers in high school told me I couldn't go to college. Uh, so, you know, I applied for like 13 schools, got into like one, this like tiny little school, Bay State College in Boston, Massachusetts. It's like uh, you lived in the brownstones, not a real school. And then so I ended up getting in there and then I went over to a normal state school because I wanted to be closer to you know my girlfriend at the time, which eventually now is my wife. So when we graduated, we moved down to Newport, Rhode Island. So I thought, hey, this is a great tourist destination. I have zero idea what I want to do in my life. So let's recreate college and actually have a better experience. So I started bartending. So I did that for uh, I did that for about four years, and then of course I wanted to make some more income. So I started personal training while doing bartending. And then at, at one point in time, it was just me and my wife got so exhausted. Uh, I remember it was like one morning, like four a.m., coming off one of those one of those trips, and I remember talking to her, and we were just like, "This is not what we want to do for the rest of our lives." Because if you're if you're in the industry. If you've lived it, then you either are in it for life or you, you're trying to make your way out of it. So me and her approached my father-in-law at the time who you know was involved in real estate for 30 plus years. I think you guys had him on here. Uh, and he was recreating his business because he got crossed in 2008. So then he started buying real estate with creative financing. So I, I knew he was reinventing his business. So I approached him and said, I, I have no idea if I'm going to like real estate, but it's going to be better than what I'm doing. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so what I do, I started doing that in between my bartending and personal training. So at one point in time, I'm bartending from about five, six at night till one, two, three in the morning. And then I'd take a power nap and then I'd personal train because everybody wants to be trained at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 7 a.m. So I'd do that for the next couple hours. And then I'd take another power nap and then I'd start making cold calls or dialing to people that are potential prospects. So I did that for about six months. And then eventually I just Cortez did it and burned the boats. And, yeah. uh, you know, it still took me about six months to do my first deal. So I was about three or four months in from being a full-time real estate investor before I got my first deal. But, you know, after that, you know, it broke the ice. Was it my best deal? But uh, I certainly treated it that way because it was the one that really started building up my confidence and, and propelled me forward. Yeah. Three or four months of uh, not making any money doing your first deal. How did you stay motivated and keep cold calling and, and grinding it out? Yeah, I, I I think it was because I didn't do my first deal <laughs> that I was grinding out and I was staying motivated. Um, you know, I've kind of always learned at least the way my life's been set up is every I've always had to grind in order to, in order to accomplish anything. I grew up with a single mother. The money never made it to the end of the week per se. So uh, I just I, I had that chip on my shoulder and it's still too still you know due to this day. Um, so it was just really about trying to prove again, myself and everyone else wrong at that time. Uh, cause you know, who, who would have thought that I was going to be a, a real estate investor. So I just kept grinding out and just kept taking it day by day, just working on my craft. And eventually, you know, I got some, some crazy guy to take a zero money down deal, a sub two. And uh, I was going through a divorce, happened to be in the right place at the right time. Cause I certainly didn't have my scripts down, uh, and was able to kind of put that thing together, uh, and break the ice per se. Yeah. So I was going to ask you if your first deal was a wholesale deal, but it sounds like it was a, a sub two deal. Yeah. I've never, I've never done a single wholesale deal. I've never, never wholesale, never fixed and flipped. Uh, never was a realtor. So literally I was coming from zero real, real estate experience going into creative financing. And I say that because a lot of people approach me and they're like, well, how do I get in creative financing? Don't I need to like go wholesale first, kind of learn the craft and then start doing lease options and start holding. And I was telling them like, I'll just fast forward it and just go do the thing you want to do. Just go buy real estate on the on owner financing, on sub twos. You don't got to go give up a bunch of money in order to do that. Just go for that first. Yeah. One of the things I love about what you all teach um, specifically is around creative finance. So the thing I love about real estate is there's no template on the way you should do it. When we think about real estate, non-real estate people think about real estate, they think 30-year mortgage, conventional financing, mm -hmm. not realizing that a majority of the real estate deals out there don't fall into that bucket. So I wanted to frame up this conversation with a couple key terms and make sure our listeners are on the same page. So when you say creative finance, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about creative financing, I'm really talking about our, our three acquisition strategies and there are two disposition strategies. So and, and, and really what it all breaks down to is we don't use banks, we don't put down large down payments, and we never personally are signed or guaranteed debt. Um, and we're able to do that through terms or creative financing, which is our three main acquisition strategies are lease options or just really the ability to control an asset without ownership. Because really all a lease option is is a, an agreement that states that I have the ability to buy this property in X amount of time. And in the meantime, I'm going to take over any and all responsibility. Um, and then it, with the intent that we're going to go sell it to a third-party buyer, which would be our tenant buyer or how we start creating our, you know, our, our three paydays. 
So that that's one structure. The second structure is seller financing. So you approach a seller that's debt free. Now this could be great for passive strategies. This could be good for active strategies. Go to sellers that are debt free. You know they're in good financial standing, and what they care about is making the most amount of money. Or for you know tax reasons, they want to extend and take monthly payments. So you approach a seller and you agree upon a price. You agree upon a specific amount of money each month you're going to pay them. And then you agree upon a time frame, which could be a balloon that you need to pay it off. Or you would create a normal mortgage where it'd be a 30-year amortization at a certain amount of uh, interest rate. So uh, that'd be a second strategy. And then the third strategy would be, which I think is the most prevalent right now, or probably the most talked about, which is buying a property subject to the existing loan or sub twos. Um, and the reason why they're so prevalent right now is because of how uh, turmoil the market is right now and how much it is in flux and how many people overpaid on houses because they want a specific interest rate. So now they have no equity or how many people are in arrears because of COVID and how it hit them and they haven't been able to catch it up. So a, a strategy to handle all of that is to buy it sub two. So what that really means is you just approach a seller that has debt on the property you close on it, that that um, mortgage remains attached to that seller's credit, and you just make payments as if you're that seller. You make the payments for the seller. Um, and the way we would structure that long term is we typically don't have an end date because a lot of these properties that we buy uh, either don't have a lot of equity or you have to come up with money up front to, in order to catch somebody up in arrears for a certain period of time. It could be five years, 10 years, 30 years, depending upon the, the asset. And because two things need to happen in order for you to make money in, with a sub two. One is you're going to have appreciation go on this property. So the property has to appreciate. And two is the, the mortgage needs to be paid down over time. So that way you can create equity in it. Uh, so then we would place our buyer in the house and we would let the thing run until there's you know, a certain amount of equity or keep it uh, or exit out of it. So those are the three main ways we, we construct our deals. And I, when I talk about creative financing, um, and then on the back end, what we would do is we work with buyers that need time in order to qualify for loans. So roughly 60 to 80% of the market, uh, 60, 80% of the buyers out there cannot qualify for loan. So picture this, 10 people walk into a bank, uh, four people can qualify for loan. Um, the other six, now they're not all buyers, but the other six could potentially be buyers with a specific plan in place. Uh, so then what we would do is we just create a very specific plan with those buyers and help them go from tenant to buyer. And that's what we call them, tenant buyers, uh, and then get them to a point in which they can then qualify for their own loan in the future. The second part, though, is, is the best part. This is for the investors out there that want to do long-term holds, uh, that want to you know build out a portfolio and don't want their properties to cash out. Now, this is where the fun uh, begins, which is when you start acquiring property that you can then sell or finance as well. So now, like on our on a a deal in which let me give you an example. So we bought a property. Uh, it is uh, in the Cape Cod. So Cape Cod, Massachusetts, is a really well known area, especially for tourists. So we acquired a property from a um, from a seller. She was uh, she was going through a divorce. Um, we ended up acquiring that property. We had to catch this property up. Uh, we, had, we had to pay six grand in order to catch up the arrears on the property or the back payments. We then acquired that property. Uh, we took it over subject to the existing loan. So we now own it for, and we're all in at about like 360,000. The property is worth about 425. So we sell this property to an end buyer at 425. 
That end buyer comes in with 10% down. It's roughly $40,000. We're now making a payment on the mortgage of 3.5% interest rate. So we're just making the payment on the existing mortgage. We're collecting roughly, I think it's like $25 to $2,800. So we're making a spread of about 500 bucks. Once this buyer got to a certain point in our agreement, we said to him, hey, instead of going to a bank, we'll create a new mortgage for you. And now, so now we would create a wrap mortgage. So it, it's now an instrument that, that wraps the existing mortgage. And now we're making, and we sold it at a 7.5% interest rate. So we're now making 4% interest every single, like a spread, a delta, 4% interest every single month. Probably for another 30 years, it'll eventually pay itself off. Uh, so now you, you went from, in that exact transition, you went from an active real estate investor to a passive real estate investor that simply is collecting mailbox money. Yeah, I, I want to highlight. There. Yeah, I want to highlight too the difference between a three and a half percent mortgage and a seven percent mortgage is not three and a half percent; it's a hundred percent difference because yeah. the difference is not that spread; it's it's uh, double the spread basically. But when you talk about sub two, I mean, obviously you probably get this question a lot, but the first thing that comes to people's mind is, isn't there a due on sale clause? So talk us through the due on sale clause, and should we be nervous about that if we've got a property on sub two? Yeah, that's a great question and, and a very normal question that we get asked on a daily basis. So I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so I'm not an attorney just, and I'm not giving legal advice in any, any form or fashion. Um, based upon our conversations with our attorneys, I'll start off this way, with our attorneys, what we have then been presented is this is a contractual, uh, it's a contractual challenge between the uh original seller and the bank. It's not a legal challenge. This isn't like you're going to get arrested for this. It's a contractual challenge that states uh, that it could possibly call the loan due if the property is sold. Like there's not very specific language that says no matter what, this is going to be called loan due. It's it's generalized information. So there's, there's that contractual obligation. Well, we have never actually had a due on sales cause called ever uh, on us. And, and we've had, we've done plenty of these transactions, but does it mean that it couldn't be called? It certainly, it could. Uh, so there's other ways around it, just in general, there's other structures than just a sub two, because we're talking about specifically a sub two where you close on it, title transfers with no trust involved, no land trust, no, uh, none of those additional instruments. So a, the property, uh, the due on sales clause, it's very unlikely for it to be called in um, at that point in time, especially if you're holding up to your obligation, which is to make the mortgage payments. That's why it doesn't happen. So if you stop making mortgage payments, you can almost guarantee the loan's going to be called in. But if you're consistently making those mortgage payments, it, uh, the loan very unlikely is going to be called due. If you've ever caught wind of like a local bank, because this is what happened to us. Through, we were buying properties like outside of Scranton, Pennsylvania. And one of the attorneys that we were working with, he said, hey, there's a local bank that's that's threatening or that is calling loans due in the area. Um, so what I would suggest is you do a land contract or a contract for deed, uh, which is another structure that, again, increases the, uh, the likelihood that they won't call it due because it's not filed. It actually sits in, in your attorney's drawer, um, that type of con uh, contraction. So... With that, though, um, you still can, our, our CPA or our account would still bring the property on the books so we can still depreciate it and treat it as if we have actually closed on it 
even though it's just sitting in, in, in the drawer. So I know you give a long answer there, but at the end of the day, if you're doing what you said you're going to do, then you should have no challenges with dealing with a due on sales clause um, with any of those transactions that you had. And in reality, too, there's actually some mortgages that actually have subject to language on them, like a VA loan. Um, so there's even certain properties that you could buy that that already have that language built in. Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, a bank cares about getting their money back, right? And so if you catch up a defaulting buyer to their payments and start paying them moving forward, chances are it's in the bank's interest to not do on sale clause that property. And again, I'll clarify, I'm not an attorney either. So yeah. don't listen to two guys on the internet talking about this. Go uh, go talk to your own attorneys. But that's been kind of my experience in the past is that banks are motivated to make sure that they get paid back. And if you're doing that, then they're probably fine. Um, do you all buy due on sale clause insurance though? I've heard that there's due on sale clause insurance out there as well. Yeah, I've never purchased due on sales clause insurance. Uh, I forget there's a very specific company. So if that is a, a, a worry of yours, I believe that they charge like 1% of the sale in order to insure it. Uh, so that's, you have the ability to do that. Um, I also, if a due on sales clause is called um, here's here's some other things. So if a due on sales clause, it it doesn't like automatically like like all of a sudden they take the property back. Like that's that's the like there is a long drawn out process as you can imagine where it goes to the courts, which means that you can exit this property a couple different ways. Like you could go ahead and sell it before the due on before they actually go ahead and collect it. But also the way in which we structure our agreements. So we any sub two we buy, we actually buy with a, a trust like a family trust, because there's a Garden St. Germain Act of like the 1980s states that somebody can transfer title on the property for state or tax planning purposes. So the way we buy it is we would say if uh, John Smith that lives on 123 Jump Street, we would buy it with the 123 Jump Street Smith's Family Trust. And then the beneficiary would be our company. That, that adds an additional layer. So if a bank goes ahead and happens to look, they would say, oh, the title is transferred, but it's with a trust because they're not going to see the beneficiary anyways. But let's think, well, we'll even add another layer. So let's say they then say, uh, yeah, actually, we're going to call a loan due because we noticed that the beneficiary is a different LLC that, and we know it's not owned by John Smith. Well, what can we do? We can actually change the beneficiary back to the original seller uh, if we choose to as well in order to protect everyone involved. Um so I, I just kind of give these like little nuances or little exit strategies because within creative financing or real estate in general, there's so many different available options in order to make sure that both you, the seller, and your end buyer are all protected. Uh, and as long as everybody's on the same page and are doing the right things for real estate investing, then you're not going to, you're not going to, I shouldn't say you're not going to see challenges. You're going to very much limit the percentage of those challenges to come back and bite you in the butt. Yeah, this is why I love what you guys do is because not only did you walk us through a number of different strategies to take title of a property without having any money down and no debt on your personal balance sheet, but you're also talking through some of these nuances. So you all have a tremendous amount of experience on how you can work through these nuances uh, to protect yourself as well. One, one of the things that um, we've talked about uh, before with Chris, and I've heard you talk about on podcasts, is this idea of a three payday. Can you tell mm -hmm. our listeners, what is a three payday? The way our uh, trademark three-pay system works is because we exit via rent-to-own, we're able to really generate three different streams of income. So we bought the property 
uh, for a certain price, a certain time frame, a certain monthly payment. So then what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and sell this property for a higher price. Our buyers are willing and able to pay a premium on the property because they need time because they can't go qualify for loans and they need time. So we sell the property at a higher price. We sell the property at a higher monthly payment and we sell it at a certain, a certain time frame. So the way the three paydays work is our buyer comes and approaches us and they're going to give us a non-refundable deposit. Typically between anywhere from three to 10% of the elevated or premium purchase price. So that's your payday one. So you buy it, you get the property under agreement, you go ahead and you sell it. Now you collect a large non-refundable deposit. And again, it's non-refundable. So it goes right into HIP National Bank. It's yours. It does get credited off the purchase price though. So it is going to be shown. It is going to be sourced. Um, and that's, that's another reason why we tend to close all of our deals, even in title states. With attorneys, when I say close, I mean like it's a formal lease signing. So the buyer shows up, signs the paperwork in front of the attorney. The attorney then collects the non-refundable deposit and then does the disbursements. Just it's a you know it protects you consistently. But your attorney is you're going to be your lead witness in case anything you know goes goes awry. Um, so that's your non-refundable deposit. Your payday two now is the cash flow. It's the delta. So. When you take a property under agreement, you uh, you take over any and all responsibilities, right? Because you either own it or you're controlling it. But when you go and you sell this to a buyer on, a, on their own lease option, you're now going to be passing along the responsibilities. So they're maintaining and treating the property as if they're the homeowner. They just don't have, they still have a mortgage yet. So that means that you don't have overhead on this property. So you're simply collecting the Delta and you're going to collect their payment. And then you're going to make the payment on the, on the property, either to the seller or to the bank. So that's your payday too. For us, it averages between like three and $500 per property. You know, some properties are, are greater, but between three and $500 is very, you know, uh, normal uh, per month per property. And then our payday three then is the equity that we build in the property. So every single month that we're collecting a monthly payment from the buyer, we're then going to pay the mortgage or the bank, uh, the bank or the seller. So there's a portion of that payment that is paying down principal over time. So even if we don't own it, we're getting the principal pay down benefit because of the way we structure our, our lease options. So now you're building an equity in the deal. So over time, you're building an equity, plus you originally sold the property for a higher price. So if there's any uh, delta left over there, that's your payday three. So when this deal all comes to fruition, now you're going to get another lump sum at the end of that transaction. Uh, so that'd be your payday three. So that's how our three paydays work. You get me jazzed up here. I could get money in my deposit, make a $300 a month spread, get paid at the end and not have any debt on my balance sheet. Because while I control the asset, I technically do not have debt assigned to me on the asset. Yeah. So I was having a conversation with, um, Another gentleman we were doing a, uh, a mastermind after speaking on one of these podcasts to his group. And they were telling us how like they had like tens of millions of dollars in their own their own personally guaranteed debt because they're buying large multis and things like that. And me and my final line just look at each other like, uh, like you clearly haven't been through 2008. Uh, no, there's a time to leverage and there's a time to not. Like if they're at 60% leverage, I mean, then, then you're an absolute, you're fine. But when we look at our portfolio, I mean, we're we're typically controlling anywhere from say sixty to hundred million dollars between ours and our students across the country, and none of us nor any of our students are personally on that. So it doesn't really matter what the you know economy does; we'll just sit tight and wait throughout the entire yep. process without worrying about any banks calling us. Yep, yep. 
We spent a lot of this conversation talking through real estate, but you're also CEO of your company as well. And going from bartender to real estate investor to now CEO of um, a company, talk us through your leadership journey. What have you learned along the way? Everything. <laughs> and nothing. <laughs> I'd say everything. Yeah, everything and nothing. Yeah, because I mean, you learn uh, and you implement. I was on a I was on a podcast with a uh, gentleman named, I think, uh, Unstoppable BA. I don't know if you've been on that podcast. But one of his, like, quotes that he said from one of his previous podcasts were, um, was, the fastest way to grow was to learn and implement at the same time. And and that's really what I've I've kind of done my, my entire life. Because once I first got involved in uh, real estate, so I got involved in real estate, then I, uh, I started doing some real estate deals, and then I took over the entire acquisition side of our family company. So then I was what we would call a seller specialist. But really all I did is I just was buying real estate. That's all my job was, is to buy real estate. And then I'd pass along to my brother-in-law, and then he would sell the real estate to our tenant buyers. So I went through that process. And then while that process was going on, we started to create this little company called Smart Real Estate Coach, or Wicked Smart. Uh, so now... I was now teaching people how to do what I was doing for a period of time. So the fastest way to now be able to, you know, grow as quickly as possible is you have if you if you have to teach it to somebody, then you have to learn it really inside out. Because if you're telling somebody wrong information and then they're implementing wrong information, you know, you're going to have egg all over your face. So that that sped up my process there as well. And then we started growing and we started coaching and growing out this the smart real estate coach company as well. Which then brought it to you know it's we uh, hitting five thousand a couple times now back to back years, and what that really taught me throughout that entire process was just if I was going to continue to elevate, that I need to continuously put myself in a position where I was learning and implementing at the same time over and over and over again. And as I mean, you can imagine, Matt, and I'm sure you go through the exact same thing. It's each time you try to elevate, you just reach a new uh, uh, as a, like a new challenge, right? Um, they say new, uh, new devils at new levels. So it's just like every time now you bump in your head against the wall consistently uh, until you learn it, implement it, and then and then fine tune it. So that's really what my journey has been consistently. It's just been running up against another problem, trying to solve it, and then running up against the next one, and uh, you know being okay doing it. It sounds like learn, implement, teach. Learn, implement, teach. Yes, I would I would have to agree with you there because then we have the masterminds and everything that we have our amazing community. So then we come in and teach the next level of leaders up on how to grow and scale that up as well because most of our students are going from solopreneur to CEO. So we're just continuously helping them go through that journey as well. So now they're getting that next level coaching about. So it becomes way more, way bigger than just, uh, hey, go do some real estate deals. This is about like an evolution of developing real estate investors and companies uh, as they continue to grow. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask leaders too is, are there any leaders that you look up to or admire from a leadership standpoint? I think there's lots of them. Uh, it just depends on on what specific um, thing I'm trying to learn, right? Because there's, there's leaders across the board in every different dynamic. So anything from real estate investing to buying and selling companies to elevating our leadership team, uh, to thinking through strategy in order to grow and scale the business, um, how to run a portfolio company or, or multiple companies at the same time while you're trying to grow one and you got to stabilize the other. Um, if I, I mean, at this stage, I would say like if I just looked at this little snapshot in this uh, like last 30 days, 
I've been loving the book, uh, Your Next Five Moves from uh, yeah. Patrick Beck David, which has been awesome. Uh, helping think through strategies and help our uh, not only our team, but then all of our students align with their vision and create the right expectations, the right action plans, uh, which goes a long way as well. So I would say like today, that, that'd be a great leader. Yep. Talk about a guy that's had many different acts in his career too, from military mm-hmm. to sales agents, to CEO, to selling a company now to the platform and the influence that he has today. I mean, that's a, that's a great leader to follow. And I love a lot of his stuff around strategy as well. I think he's super smart. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think the biggest challenge that we face more than do, is there a leaders to follow. I think it's deciding which leader to follow because there's so many of them out there. Uh, and then getting really focused. Um, I was just speaking at uh, speaking with some of our top real estate investors today on our mastermind. Um, and what we talked about, we were looking at shortcuts in order to get uh, in order to get results faster. And I, I'm a real big believer that like focus is like one of the number one one of the number one shortcut strategies. And it's because like yeah, you can get good at creative financing, and if if you really go deep fast then you're going to be able to build that craft significantly faster. But the challenge right now, what most people face is like they're, they're say they're diving into creative financing and then they look to the left and they're like, oh, I'm not getting the results I want creative financing. So now I'm going to go to multifamily and then I play around there for a little bit and then I'm going to go do wholesaling and I play around there. And what they're doing is that they're missing out on the, the growth and the evolution that they could be taking with one specific subject deeper because they're blocking out everything else, which means that their focus on their skill sets, their mindset, and their systems for this particular business right now is to get that really deep and build a big foundation. So then if you choose to later on to enter into other initiatives in order to support the current business you've already built. So that goes for anyone. If you're like, you're in wholesale right now, make sure that thing is you know ticking away and really moving, learning that skill set. If you're in creative financing, like that's got to be it for at least a three to five year window. So then you can build upon that or put the right systems, people's processes in place. And now we'll start running on Tony. You could go do the next thing. Yeah. I mean, the fastest way from point A to point B is a direct line, right? And to not focus on, only focus on one thing and not be distracted. Um, that tends to be hard though. And and I always, I, I find this question interesting. Like, how do you know when something hasn't had enough time versus it's the wrong path? Right. So how do you know when you're going from point A to point B that you need to stay in this little rut right now because you're coming through on the other side? Or hey, you need to get out of this rut because clearly this doesn't align with your skill sets, your passion, or whatever it is. I think you I think you nailed it right there, which is like you got a backpedal here, which is is the is the vision of what you want to accomplish and who you want to be aligned with the current the current path that you're on. I think it's really easy and we all do it. It's really easy to look at the guy on the right and say, oh, he wants a sports car. He wants to make a million dollars. He's starting to see some success. I need to do that. We're, we're really, if the aligned vision of who you want to become is aligned with what you're currently doing and the effort that you're going to need to put in in order to get there, then you're on the right path. So I, I give this example during the mastermind, which was if you're coming into real estate investing to um, make a you know make a million, make ten million, hundred million, whatever that is, or you're coming into real estate investing in order to create time and financial freedom, two completely different visions of where you want to go. So I just see too many people compare themselves to the next person to the right, and then they say, "Well, I actually came in originally for time freedom, but this guy's doing so many deals that I need to be him or her." 
which then that that creates friction in unaligned, you know, that in misalignment. So now they're of course not going to reach those goals because they're not the ones that are willing to stay 10 hours, 14 hours, 18 hours at, at the office or get on the phone late at night after after work because their original goal was to get time freedom. So now it's just it's completely opposite. You're butting heads against what the actual vision of what you care about. So the faster that that all of us can get aligned with the vision of who we want to become and what we actually care about in life is the faster we're actually going to get to that, that, that end goal. Uh, so as soon as you have that alignment, consistent alignment, then it's really about creating the right expectations and then having the right amount of output or action in order to reach those expectations. Because what, what we see a lot in, in any, especially in this day and age, I'm starting to sound like an old guy, but in this day and age is like the expectation is that I just become like an influencer and I make all these money and I just take pictures and I hang out all day. But the reality is like, if you want to make this much money, make a million, two million, five million, whatever it is, the amount of effort you need to put in, especially at the beginning, is significantly uh, greater than what we all you know, have been taught. Uh, and I yeah. think that's where the mismanage comes in. So if the end goal is huge, you got to put in a huge amount of effort. If the end goal is is lighter, then you can manage that effort. Uh, so I, I think that's I think that's where some challenges come in play. Yeah, brilliantly said. The only thing I would add there too is the person that wants time freedom and the person that wants ten million dollars a year are both considered successful if they achieve what they wanted in their own life. And I I struggle with this as well as I think most ambitious people of looking to the person to the right and saying they're more successful than me, but forgetting that their kids hate them. Right. They don't show up to soccer. They don't they don't help their partner out in the way that they need to help their partner out around the household. So I would encouraging everybody to look at what you're saying, Zach, is that both of you could be successful if you're clear on what success means to you before you start the journey so that you don't get distracted with the person to the right and to the left of you. Yeah, like David, uh, Patrick Beth David said this very eloquently, which was fulfill alignment creates fulfillment like if you're in a line like we all know when we're aligned with what we're trying to accomplish because i've gone through it so many times in my life where it's like i just keep butting my head and then i just keep gripping harder and you grip harder and you grip harder and, and then all of a sudden you look at a different path in life you just take a break you take a step back and you're like oh there's this other path and then once you take the other path I, I, all of a sudden everything's smooth and you're like oh that was the path that i was supposed to take and I just yeah. been I just been slamming my head against this wall for the past six months. I wish I just took a step back, reevaluated everything, and then looked around and looked at the the next path. Yep. Yep. Well, good conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Uh I've read lots of good books lately. Um, but definitely uh that five steps is uh has been a great book. Uh, highly recommend it. Your next five steps. Um, I'm a big fan of, of, of stoicism right now. I would say right now, but I've been diving deeper and deeper into stoicism, especially as I want to say, um, I want to say more pressure, more pressure is probably not the right way to say it, but more responsibility. You know, as, as right. you're growing up, company gets bigger. It's like, how do we, and I shouldn't say just a company, but then your kids are getting older and you know, there's just, there's so much happening taking a step back and uh, and really diving into stoicism uh, has been helpful, which one of the books I've been reading is called like the a handbook for new stoics, which is pretty good. You get it right on audible. Uh, you're shaking your head. Uh, so maybe you've read it. And then the, the other one that 
in the I've actually just read for the second time, which is What It Takes by Stephen Schwarzman, um, which is an amazing book uh, when it comes to real estate. I mean, not only real estate investing, but business investing in general. So that those are probably been some of my my top books as of this year. A commonly recommended book on the show, by the way, Stephen Schwartzman's book. Oh, it's, well, that's great. I mean, yeah. I, I think it combines kind of all the worlds here with, uh, especially if you're saying a lot of, uh, a lot of your audience is in tech and in other big companies, it makes total sense. Yep. Yep. Our second one is, I believe the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Well, every day I got to get up and work out. I'll tell you that. Uh, that's the most important thing to start my day. Um, so the way my, my day kind of starts out, and, and I'm sure you hear many of this on your podcast about your morning routine, but I can tell you when I do my morning routine and when I don't do my morning routine, uh, I'm definitely in misalignment. Uh, so I get up at about five o'clock and I go just journal for like 15 minutes in my, my home office. And then I jump in my car and then I go do, uh, do a workout for about an hour. Just those two things coming out of uh, in my day. If I just nailed those two things, my day is in a completely different place than if I don't. So that that would be a major habit of mine. And if I can, at least listen to a portion of an audible each day uh, specifically to help me grow. And then most importantly, implement that. So if I those three things would be uh, uh, the major habits for me. Yeah, 100% agree on the morning alignment. I think uh, it's often overplayed on podcasts, but I tell you, my world is drastically different when I do my little routine in the morning versus when I don't. Yeah, Our third agree. one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? <laughs> I've received a lot of advice, some of it good, some of it bad. Um, I think like, if I just looked at like my world as a whole, because I mean, I could probably give you advice just on business, uh, but... I received this piece of advice one time and it was from an, an older gentleman that had a family. And he said, no matter what's going on in your world, and I'm probably butchering it, no matter what's going on in your world. So if you're sitting there on a Zoom call and your kids walk in, you automatically tell everybody on the Zoom call that you got to take a quick, that that you need a second. Because at the end of the day, your kid's going to realize like what's most important. Uh, so I'm not always the best at that, but I'm consciously always thinking about that. So especially in this world, so if my kids walk in and I was on a podcast right now, I would tell you, hey, we got we to take two seconds here so I can figure out what's going on with them and then bring them back. Uh, because at the end of the day, I mean, our, our kids have to be the most important thing, even which is even hard, even when you're extremely ambitious like, like us, you're still going to take that quick little pause. It makes the biggest difference. Yeah, that is definitely one thing I try to be very, very conscious of is if they walk in this room right now of making sure that they're the priority. Yeah, even if it's for two seconds too, because most of the time they don't want to talk a lot. They just want to know what's going on, especially yep. if my kids are five and three. So they just like want to come in and then they want to see who's on camera. They wave and then they leave. They just, they want to know what they want to be a part of everything. Yep. Yep. Our fourth one is what are you most proud of in your life? Yeah. Um, see, I could go both. Uh, I, I was, I'm always tied between uh, family and business. I mean, just it's how my brain works. I mean, I would say I'm most proud that I've been able to uh, I've been able to keep the love of my life for this long. Uh, me and my my wife have been dating since uh, uh, sixth grade. Wow, sixth grade. We were twelve years old when we first met in sixth grade Latin class. Uh, but I'll tell you, like all my success, I would I would say to her because she's brought me through a lot of 
a lot of bad places and, and help me uh, get through it. And continuously is like my biggest fan when it comes to everything else that's going on. So if I didn't do that, I don't, I don't think I'd be talking to you here today. I don't know what's more impressive that you met your wife when you were in sixth grade or that you were taking Latin classes in sixth grade. <laughs> well, I didn't want to learn Spanish or, uh, or French. So uh, when I found out about Latin class, it was like, just study Roman history. I was like, perfect. Oh, this cool. is great. I can do that. Yeah. 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 So I was like, I'm in. Uh, our, well, our fifth one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, I think I honestly think I would talk to Stephen Schwarzman. That 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 guy's the man. And the reason why, if I looked at his journey and then also the way he built Blackstone, that's exactly the way I would, I would want to build something. And I'm a huge like I like real estate. I'm a big real estate fan. I think it does a lot for you. But I'm a business guy at heart. So when I get to listen to that book, and that's why I listened to it multiple times. It's it's all about how we've been able to not only build but then scale that business um, through also helping out so many people in, in the form of uh, investing people's capital. So really understanding the dynamics of financials and growth of scaling a business. It's extremely impressive. So I would, I would love to spend some time with it. Yeah. Nobody's listening. <laughs> uh, please go ahead. I'd love to spend some time with you. Wasn't his first investor, the Harvard fund. Uh, well, he approached the Harvard Fund to okay. to be a, his first investor, and it was like ran out, and it didn't go didn't go so well. Yeah, yeah, almost. Was that fantastic conversation? If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about Wicked Smart, or just uh, find out more information, where's the best place we could point them? Yeah, go grab. Uh, I want to make sure your listeners got um, a free our free Amazon bestselling book, our first one, Real Estate on Your Terms. Uh, that'd be a great place to start. WickedSmartBooks.com forward slash ice cream. WickedSmartBooks.com forward slash ice cream. Uh, that'd be a, uh, I know that all of your audience are, are avid readers. So uh, go ahead and dive into that book as well. And you actually hear a little bit more about my story in there in one of the first couple chapters. Uh, and then if you want to fast forward that even a little bit, go to SmartRealEstateCoach.com forward slash master's class. If you want to dive into about a 50 minute free workshop, that's another good place to start. Perfect. We will link those in the show notes. And then uh, Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.